This episode is brought to you by Libro FM, the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Ours is the Reading Rock Books in Dixon, Tennessee. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports the community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dogs, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, booksellers. The Good Old Days has a special offer for you. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code OLDDAYS, all one word, O-L-D-D-A-Y-S, Old Days. The offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Now on to our show. And we are live. This is The Good Old Days, a podcast at the corner of history and true crime. I'm Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And it is Saturday once again. And you know what that means. Saturday short stack. You got it. So this week I'm at the helm and I'm going to talk about something that has fascinated me for years. And you probably already know what I'm going to tell you about. Um, But are you ready? I am so ready. Okay. So just to preface my story a little bit, Nashville, Tennessee has an extensive Civil War history. And when I first moved here, I stumbled upon an article written by the Smithsonian It was called The Curious Case of Nashville's Frail Sisterhood, and it was by Angela Saratori. Now, what I read in this article completely floored me. It was about a legal system of prostitution instituted in the city of Nashville by the Union Army out of sheer desperation. And as soon as I read it, I knew I needed to know more. So I went to the Tennessee State Archives And I got a very nice archivist to point me in the direction of a series of books. And these look like like those old family Bibles. I mean, enormous, like the size of like an old time magazine, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, from a, you know, like height v. width. But they're all at least a thousand pages. She pointed me in the direction of part third. It was called (laughs) it was called Medical and Surgical History of the War of the Rebellion, part third. And that's basically where I got the full story. The timeline of events is pretty easy to follow. So let's start at the beginning. The American Civil War started in April of 1861. The state of Tennessee was the last state to officially secede from the Union in June of 1861. Not even one year into the American Civil War, the Federal Army, a.k.a. the Union Army, took control and occupied Nashville in February of 1862. This happened for a variety of reasons, but it's mainly because rebel leaders failed to prepare proper defenses around Nashville and Confederate forces abandoned the city without a shot. Uh, Nashville's abundance of hospitals, colleges and manufacturing facilities, not to mention the extensive network of railway lines and riverboat access, meant that the Union Army could establish a stronghold in the heart of Tennessee. Tens of thousands of Union troops flooded into the encampments in and around the city, as well as refugees fleeing the war-torn countryside. 
This, of course, included an influx of sex workers who were attracted by the hordes of lonely young men who were far from home. Over the next year of occupation, the city begrudgingly learned how to function under martial law. Many of the Confederate sympathizers still living in the city were quite belligerent, but the soldiers gave as good as they got. And I mean, spitting back and forth, cursing, people coming to blows. But one place where Union soldiers could receive a warm welcome was in Nashville's red light district. It was called Smoky Row. For people who are familiar with Nashville like I am, mm-hmm. is Smoky Row kind of near Printer's Alley? Because when I think of like Nashville's underworld during this time, that's what I think of. <clears throat> so basically, Smoky Row occupied about two city blocks right by Front Street, like right by the um, Cumberland River. So if you were to walk down First Street... Until you hit the river, You're, we're mm-hmm. talking about the blocks like right before you hit that riverside. So kind of by where the old fort is? Yeah, exactly. Exactly okay, that. Cool. Yep. Far from home and plagued with daily reminders of their mortality, the soldiers went to the bordellos and the boarding houses of Smoky Row in droves. By the end of June of 1863... Brigadier General Robert Seaman Granger, who was in command over Nashville, he had a full-blown crisis on his hands. His army was besieged with high rates of syphilis and gonorrhea. Granger knew just who to blame. It was the, quote, diseased prostitutes on Smoky Row. Granger essentially two-hand chucked this problem at his provost marshal, a man named Lieutenant Colonel George Spaulding. He was the overlord of the provost guard, which is essentially a military police in charge of keeping general peace throughout the city. Spaulding's solution was to run the sex workers out of town, at least the white ones. In the early days of July, the provost guard teamed up with the local police force in Nashville and systematically went from bordello to bordello, shack to shack, boarding house to boarding house within Smoky Row. They tore up the rooms, they threw the furniture around, and any woman suspected of selling sex, they pulled them out into the streets. They forced some aboard train cars and sent them away by rail. Others were banished via steamboats on the Cumberland River. And this brings me to the story of the Idaho, perhaps the most ironically named steamboat ever to exist. On July 8th, 1863, Captain John Newcomb stood aboard his brand new river vessel and watched as the police and the provost guard marched 111 white women, including five or six children, up the long plank that connected the wharf to the Idaho's lower deck. I should add that this was the Idaho's maiden voyage. Newcomb rightly thought, that a cargo of sex workers would probably ruin the Idaho's reputation forever. And he told Provost Marshal George Spaulding as much, but his appeals fell on deaf ears. No one seemed to care about Newcomb's troubles. He had his orders and he would abide by them or his shiny new boat would be confiscated by the United States Army and he would face a court-martial. So these were very dire circumstances for all involved. I'd like to mention that some of the women who were pulled off of Smoky Row weren't allowed to bring a change of clothes or any of their belongings. So they were literally plucked from their homes without a stitch of property to take with them and sent on their way. Crowds cheered from the riverbank as the boat sailed away. Newcomb drove his steamboat up the Cumberland River towards Louisville, Kentucky. That was his destination. Take this boatload of sex workers and dump them in Louisville. 
I wonder how Mitch McConnell felt about that. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I'll write him a letter and I ask mean, him. He was there, right? <laughs> of course. For a solid month, Newcomb sailed without finding anywhere that would let him dock. He went from Nashville to Louisville, where he was refused access to the dock because they had, they had already heard what was coming up the river. Then Newcomb went on to Newport, Kentucky, where friends and family members of a few of the women aboard had obtained a writ of habeas corpus, uh, unlawful imprisonment, and were allowed to disembark and leave the ship. It was reported that the provost guard had grabbed women who weren't even sex workers, like just women on walking on the street. And so it makes sense to me that a few of these women would be rescued by enraged family members. But Can you at- imagine just like <laughs> no. going about your business on Broadway and it's like, get on this boat. Yep. You're a whore. Time to leave. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Was it like the ultimate profiling? Yeah, absolutely. So after Newport, Newcomb sailed to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he was again refused port. And men were trying were swimming out to the ship and climbing aboard because it's a ship of sex workers. And they're like, all right, I'm here to party. Now, he floated around there until the spectacle was finally put to an end by officials in Washington. They ordered him back to Nashville because in their eyes, it was Nashville leadership's problem to deal with. Putting 115 sex workers on a ship and shipping them to another union-occupied city is not the way to rid the Union Army of sex workers, right? You see the problem there? So Newcomb officially docked in Nashville on August 3rd, and Spaulding was right back where he started. Newcomb, however... Well, his ship was completely ruined. The women had rightfully been irate and enraged, and they had torn, you know, torn the the staterooms to pieces. Um, they had <laughs> there had been a fistfight aboard where there were knives produced, and it had been quite the ordeal. And uh, Newcomb essentially uh, came back with a bill of like two thousand dollars and said, "This is the damage." And he had to go through quite a bit of rigmarole and didn't get reimbursed until after the war ended. Now, expulsion hadn't worked. And so Spaulding thought, well, maybe it's time for practical thinking. And to his credit, he pivoted beautifully. This was his plan. Any white woman wishing to apply the trade of prostitution in Nashville had to register for a license. That license would be kept on record in Spaulding's office. The women had to submit to a physical exam once a week to ensure they were healthy. And Spaulding levied a tax of 50 cents per week on the women, and the money collected was used to run a hospital dedicated specifically to the women with the STIs. In this case, I believe it was the former residence of the Catholic bishop in Nashville, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, The soldiers had their own STI hospital, and it was hospital number 15. Spaulding named Surgeon R. Fletcher of the United States Volunteers as the head of the program, and this is the man who was examining the women. Now, people involved in this system noticed immediately that as these women received proper care and respect, their behavior began to change. OK, so I'm just going to say they 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 started to become less body. Their appearance approved. Their appearances improved cleanliness, their clothing, you know, better clothing. They just took better care of themselves. They started acting less crass, using better language on the streets, being more respectful towards authority figures. Word spread of the humane treatment of these women. And before long, sex workers from other cities started coming to Nashville to ply their trade because the the conditions were better. 
without this system, they were required to go to like back alley quacks, you know, people who were saying, oh, I can cure you of syphilis. Just drink what's in this bottle. And, you know, it, not a good situation. Nothing regulated. No, you know, not good. No. Isn't it amazing what happens when you treat people like people? Mm -hmm. It is amazing. By January of 1864, Nashville had 300 registered prostitutes under the system, 300 white registered prostitutes, 60 of which were listed as, quote, diseased. By April 30th of that same year, there were 352 licensed prostitutes and 92 diseased. But the medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion said that most of these diseased were repeats from the 60 that were recorded back in January, which would make sense, right? Because some of these, if you don't have penicillin, things just keep recurring. Uh, but anyway, by August, there were 456 sex workers registered in the city of Nashville. And at that point, the program was opened up to black women. Because at, at, up until this point, apparently the white prostitutes were the only issue, which the press more than happily pointed out when they shipped these women away on the Idaho. It was like, OK, so you're shipping away the white prostitutes, but you're leaving the black prostitutes. So how does that stem the flow of disease? Like there's still a group of sex workers in the city. Fair point. So it's who they're seeing as people and who they're seeing as a problem. And of course, a white person as a prostitute, as a sex worker in that position is seen as a bigger issue than a black person in that same position. I also because. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say because of the general like, again, racial bias, but how they're viewing these two different people. I'm going to speculate here, but I also bet that they didn't bank on the white soldiers, too many of them would sleep with a black prostitute. But what happened is, is that after the, the white prostitutes were shipped down the river or sent away by rail, is their spaces in these bordellos on Smoky Row, black prostitutes moved in. So, like, business continued. And anybody who was spared just kept, kept on as usual. And, it, like, it in no way stopped the sex trade in Nashville. Well, no. And I mean, think about the hypersexualization of black women for all of America's history, honestly, up until this point. So I think there was probably this idea that that didn't happen. But in practice, it's very different. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, over uh, did I say it was opened up to black women? Over 50 mm -hmm. applied for licenses uh, in August. So immediately when it was opened up to them. Uh, 50 applied. And so things went on like this for a while, despite the moralistic outrage that, you know, I bet they anticipated. The program was deemed such a success that union officials in Memphis, Tennessee, enacted a similar system in 1864. And I have not been able to find a single primary source opinion from somebody who actually worked in the system to solve the problem of the STI issue, who didn't say that this was a viable solution, that this was a successful program. After the Civil War, as the soldiers were sent home, the system was disbanded. Um, but it remains an incredible example of what can happen when practicality rather than morality is applied to a problem like sex work. And, you know, not a lot of people know about it. And if they do, it's it's something that's just kind of learned about in passing. And it's like, oh, OK, you know, whatever. But there's so much more to it than that. And I would like to know so much more about the experiences of these women, you know. 
I just yeah, absolutely. I mean, it plays into our idea of these things didn't happen in the past, mm -hmm. even though, of course, we know they did. To give you an example, I went to a lecture about women in the Civil War a couple years ago, and basically, when this this, this topic was brought up, um, when the speaker put a picture up that's supposedly the only pictorial representation of the hospital for women with STDs in Nashville. And everyone basically laughed when they saw this picture because it was just a big joke. Like, let me tell you why these women showed up. You know, this is just a massive joke. But the truth of the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that most women who became prostitutes died within four years of entering the trade. They either died from sexually transmitted diseases or they died from alcoholism or drug overdoses. And that's because they're treated like they're nothing. And there are more than more than enough willing participants and paying customers. And it's just to me, it's so hypocritical because in that room, in that lecture hall, there were probably 100 people in there standing room only when it started. And the, there was a ripple of laughter and all these women were kind of giggling about, you know, the prostitutes and just, you know. But the reality is, is that most of the women in that room probably would have been of this lower class. You know, they would have had to fight, like especially Southern women, because the Southern women during the Civil War, you know, the stranglehold that the Union put on them to, to crush the spirit of this rebellion. A, a lot of Southern women had to resort to prostitution just to make ends meet, just to put food on the table. It was such a common thing. And nobody wants to talk about it because that would totally ruin our, our view of the past. You know, and it just it's it's frustrating. It really is, because I'm like, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be shameful. It can just if we look at it, if we look at history with a practical eye instead of a moral eye, I think things would make a lot more sense and be easier to digest. Well, and if we did, we wouldn't be having all of these like headline stories about women who have signed up for sites like OnlyFans and all of this shame surrounded by that. Yeah. Like, it's not shameful. Sex work is work. Yeah. And I don't know um, if you caught, it was like a month or two ago now, but that headline of the EMT who had created an OnlyFans account and someone had doxxed her. And rather than focus on the fact that she is a first responder in the middle of a pandemic having to take up sex work in order to make ends meet, it was the fact that an EMT, a first responder, someone that society held is supposed to hold anyway in high esteem is doing something that society doesn't hold in high esteem. And it was just like an interesting juxtaposition that we're still dealing with today, which I just don't think we should be. Oh, I agree with you. It makes me very so I'm I think I'm so obsessed with this because I feel like I just I'm at my, at my core. I don't think that women should be told what they can and cannot do with their bodies and depending on what they can and cannot do should not be judged as fatalistically immoral. You know, I just don't no. agree. And you don't know what you would do in that. In that, sorry, you don't know what you would do in that position. And I'm, I don't know. I think there's a lot more people, women included, of course, that participate in this today that just don't feel comfortable talking about it or sharing it because of this stigma. And that shouldn't have to be the case. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting. By the end of this 
really by the end of the Civil War, most of the soldiers who were being treated at Hospital 15 had come down with either syphilis or gonorrhea from a different city. Like the, the most of the the um, uh, STDs that were cropping up in the city of Nashville were coming from outside of Nashville. It wasn't come. It wasn't coming from their own red light district. It was coming from somewhere else. And I thought that was really interesting because it shows that it worked. Although I do have questions about that because they were treating <laughs> the way that they treated sexually transmitted diseases at this at this point. I mean, they didn't have penicillin. They didn't have an. They're treating them with like topical salvas, and they're cauterizing, you know, and lancing uh, boils and and sores and things like that. So honestly, and treating. Have you have you heard this the saying "A night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury"? Mm-hmm. It's because they would treat syphilis and gonorrhea, you know, with mercury. And I don't I don't know if it, that was actually successful. I guess. Um, but maybe it was just because some of these these diseases have a tendency to go into remission and then they don't show. So maybe that's why they thought they were cured. Yeah, because it's also how are they diagnosing this? They're not doing it by a blood test or swab like we would today. Mm-hmm. They're looking at your privates and going, yep, you got the clap. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. And let me go ahead and uh, carterize that for you. <laughs> Lovely. How about a shot to the urethra? <laughs> Oof. It's it's ugly, man. It's really ugly. That's the story of the short-lived system of legal prostitution in Nashville, Tennessee, during the American Civil War. What questions do you have? <laughs> so many. Um, <laughs> like, I guess most of my questions surround surround this idea of why, if they had this like really good system in place, why did it kind of like why did it go away? Like, why did it peter out? Because Nashville, of course, remains this center of people coming there for, I mean, entertainment in a certain sense, not to the same extent as they do today. Printer's Alley remained around. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is some of that kind of underworld activity continuing to occur. So it makes it would have made sense to keep a system like that in place. I think it's all about appearances. And I think that though people Knowing and openly acknowledging are two very separate things. So I think that after the Civil War and the Union pulled out, all of the the people who were living in the city who really fought against the system didn't like it, didn't want, didn't think that women of that kind should receive that kind of care. Um, you know, they were able to just kind of, you know, this is not something that we, we need to continue. This is a wartime folly. This is something that that is shameful to our city and we need to stamp it out quickly. But it's perfectly fine operating in the shadows. But if you make it a legitimate thing, you know, think about how that could compromise a young woman. I bet that was I was part of the argument, you know. But. I just can't wrap my head around it. I can't. Yeah, well, it's the difference between caring about all people and caring about your people. Or just yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I think the moral of this story is is that when people are treated like people, when people are treated with respect, you get better results. When you treat people as shameful members of the underworld, they stay shameful members of the underworld. So, yeah, I don't like it. (laughs) That's my opinion. That's my two cents. Yeah, I would agree with you. 
Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I want you to head to your favorite podcast platform and leave, leave us a review. Jasmine, what about social stuff? So you can find us on Twitter at the Good OD Pod and Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Good Old Days Pod. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. Enjoy your weekend. Goodbye.